Hey everyone, I'm Ben Norton and this is Rules-Based Disorder here at Colin. And today, like usual, this is going to be a live q and I'm going to take questions from people and, and it's good to see that there are already two people, three people now in the queue. I just want to begin this show uh, before, I'm going to respond to your questions in, in, a, in two minutes here, but I just wanted to begin this episode talking about a really funny incident that, that says so much about the media and about CNN's, you know, just history of publishing ridiculous propaganda. CNN just had a, a story with the former U.S. ambassador to Russia, Michael McFall, better known as Michael McPhail, because he constantly fails and gets everything wrong. And in this interview on CNN, he attacked China, claiming that China had its, its delegation walk out in protest when Zelensky of Ukraine spoke at the World Economic Forum conference. And in reality, Michael McFaul, the former U.S. ambassador to Russia, had confused China with Vietnam. He apparently didn't know the difference between the Chinese flag and the Vietnamese flag. I mean, both are red flags with yellow stars, but they're very different. The Vietnamese flag has a yellow star, a big yellow star right in the middle. The Chinese flag has five yellow stars, one big one and four small ones in the corner. And so Michael McFaul thought that the Vietnamese delegation was the Chinese delegation and CNN was attacking China, claiming that it refused to applaud and walked out in protest of Zelensky. And Chinese media has corrected CNN and criticized CNN and pointed out its propaganda. And the Global Times, which is a newspaper that is, it's, it represents a kind of current within the Communist Party of China, particularly the kind of left wing of it. And it is owned by one of the main state media outlets in China. Global Times published this article titled, Chinese delegation not applauding Zelensky in Davos? Question mark. FM urges rumor monger U.S. lawmaker to make correction. And the last paragraph of this is, it says a lot about Chinese, China's perspective on the conflict in Ukraine. And Global Times wrote, quote, the nature of the Russia conflict is a strategic game between Moscow and Washington. And the facts prove that the conflict has created a new situation that has harmed Ukraine, Russia, and the rest of Europe, but only benefits the U.S., Chinese observers said. So that's clearly China's perspective that the proxy war in Ukraine has hurt Ukraine, hurt Russia and hurt Europe. And the only country that has benefited is the United States. So pretty forceful comments there from China about the conflict in Ukraine and also just calling out CNN for its ridiculous fake news there. But of course, that's not getting any mainstream coverage, but I think it's it's an incident that really says a lot about the media and also these former ambassadors like Michael McFall, who is constantly praised in the media. He gets all of like these prestigious fellowships at Ivy League universities and think tanks. And that guy can't even tie his shoes correctly. I mean, he's so dumb. But of course, the, the U.S. diplomatic corps is not rewarded for being smart or knowledgeable. It's being it's rewarded for 
being valid imperial warriors who take any opportunity they can to attack Washington's adversaries. So with that said, I just wanted to mention that funny little episode and I'll start taking questions here. So I'm going to take the first person in the queue here, which is, uh, I think it's Cell or, or Chele or Cell. So go ahead. It's Cele. You can say it in Spanish Cele. the correct way. Hi, thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. Uh, yes, I don't know what is it with your with geography in in the U.S. It has a problem. My nephew, when he moved there at nine, he had big big problem with the teacher because he was claiming that he was American as well. Because for us, I mean, America is the continent. Exactly. And Nuestra yeah, America. Like yeah? Nuestra America. As, as, it's it's America, the continent. They hijacked the name. but <laughs> he, he showed her a map. It's the whole continent. And he said, there's three continents. <laughs> Look at that. There's no eight continents in the world. And, well... No, that's that's the thing. But anywhere uh, in, in any part of the world, I think that uh, ambassadors are a political state because uh, the, we find out recently in Argentina that um, the ambassador that signed the last treaty about Malvinas with uh, the British, uh, he was so drunk he had to call the next day his counterpart to ask him and the guy wrote a book he published it and well like <laughs> five years later we know it's embarrassing it's, it's it's bad it's really bad but yes that happened here as well and may i i have a lot of questions to ask you but i know their colors so i i stick with with a few and I'll call again. But can I ask you something about uh, about the US and what happened in in Texas or Please because do. I know you Please Okay. Do. Um I I struggle to understand it because really uh is it why is it schools especially targeted? Yeah that's that's a very good question and uh, antes solo quería decir ustedes de Argentina verdad Sí, bueno, otro día me gustaría hacer una transmisión así en español, pero bueno, la mayoría de, los, de, la, de la gente aquí no habla español, entonces voy a responder en inglés, pero quizás otro día. Es, es un gusto. Gracias por, por la, la pregunta. Um, no, no, por favor, so, cuando quieras. Uh, so, so I was just the, um, for people who are listening, it was just, it's cool, I didn't know that we were joined by uh, someone listening from Argentina, so I'm, I always... I always appreciate having people from around the world who are participating in these discussions. So as for the question, I mean, I, there isn't really a good answer, unfortunately. There, there is a history of these mass shootings targeting children in schools. And in this most recent shooting, it was an 18-year-old from Texas, and he was still in school. So, I mean, it's, it's a case of... In the, when, when it's these, some of these younger shooters, in this case, it doesn't seem like he was really ideological, like the the Nazi, the white supremacist in New York, Buffalo, who who killed 10 people. He, the shooter in, in Buffalo had a very clear ideology. It was a clear terrorist attack that was motivated to try to start a race war. Whereas this kid, I think his name is um, Salvador Ramos, who's the kid, this 18-year-old boy in Texas who did the shooting, There's no evidence to suggest that it was ideologically motivated, but, you know, there have been articles trying to explain him, what his situation was. And it seems that he 
was very unstable and had serious mental health issues. And he bought all of his guns completely legally. And he had all this military grade equipment, basically. And in Texas, it's completely legal to buy all of this stuff. So I don't know why he decided to go kill a bunch of children, many of them that were like eight years old. I can't imagine how sick someone like that would be. But the thing about mass shootings in the U.S. is that there are so many of them, but they fall in different camps. Some of them are what you could say are clear politically motivated terrorist attacks like we saw in Buffalo or like we saw in the attack on a synagogue in, in Pennsylvania. Those were white supremacists. And those are different from these other just sick individuals who uh, who knows what motivates them. But there's there's going back to the 1990s and Columbine, which is a famous shooting in Colorado. Yes, yes. There's there's a history of these young people and they're young people who are in school who attack their own. Yes, that's the difference, right? Because the I I don't I'm not sure, but I from what I know, uh, uh, Mass shootings in Australia and New Zealand got uh, the there was very successful thing to to uh, restrict arm to put more arm controls, but uh, here I mean I don't know anywhere else that happens so much in schools. It's it's I don't know I mean all I know from movies or from my my who tells me about schools, but I, I from the I never met a U.S. citizen that told me that had a good time in school, which is to me like very, very weird because it's the best time here usually. And it's, uh, it's, it seems to be ex-students. Or am I, I'm wrong. Yeah. Well, honestly, I still fail as someone born and raised in the U.S. I mean, I've lived in Latin America for a few years, but I've, spent most of my life in the U.S. and I still don't understand what what causes this. And I think a lot of people in the U.S. just they don't know why this is such a serious problem. I mean, I, I would say that the U.S. is a deeply violent society. And of course, we mm -hmm. see that very clearly reflected in the government policy, which is, you know, the government clearly sends the message to everyone that the solution to all political problems is violence, is killing people. And I can't help but think that that partially kind of seeps into the popular culture. And then, of course, in general, there is a lot of violence, not just mass shootings, but the U.S. is on general, in general, more violent than many other countries. But I, I think what's interesting is the only the only other examples I can think of of these kinds of shootings where people target children in these massacres. The only other example I can think of are, you know, like ISIS and Al-Qaeda. And there was, a, there was a similar attack in 2014 in Pakistan in the major city of Peshawar. And there was a, a, an attack by this group, which is the Pakistani Taliban, which is different from the Afghan Taliban. And they massacred dozens of children in this school. And in that case, they were targeting... Well, Boko Haram, you have, to, you have also Boko Haram. Yeah, Boko Haram. And in the but case of the, the, the Peshawar massacre... They targeted this school because it was a school where the children of military officers went. So it was like a disgusting, sick, sadistic way of trying to like make the military officers suffer by killing their children, which is just psychopathic. Yeah. But I'd really, and, and a lot of people in the U.S. when this shooting happened in Texas, 
that people assume, assumed that it might have been like motivated by another white supremacist terrorist attack, but the kid who mm-hmm. did it was himself also Latino. So yes, I have no idea. It's it. I think it's just a reflection of how the U.S. as a political and social system is extremely violent, and it encourages people to buy as many guns as they want, and there are very few restrictions on them. No, no, the guns is, is, is obvious. I, I, I cannot imagine to go around that. I don't know where to buy a gun. I mean, there's a lot of criminals around with guns. I don't know where to get them, but if I, I mean, a normal, I knew one father of a friend that had a gun. I mean, they, they're not that usual, or at least you don't know they have them. But uh, so that that's obvious. I mean, <laughs> you cannot go to a supermarket and buy a gun. That's that's insane. But that I was wondering about the other part because that that caught my attention because there's no ideology and it's so I don't know. But and then the other question regarding that is what that goes that I don't seem to understand is because there might be a lot of uh, teenagers that 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 go around saying, okay, I don't want to be shot. I don't want to be killed. And what would happen? What would be the consequences of, you know, that here in the, the South Cone, there's a lot of taking schools and by the students and it happens in Chile and it happens in Uruguay. And it's not really every day, but it's a common thing. I mean, it's when they have, they've made protests and what would happen? And they, nothing happened to them because they're minors. And what would happen to children uh, to teenagers, of course, I'm not talking about nine-year-olds, but uh, the, I don't know, 16, 17-year-old kids, if they do something about it, like, I don't know, walk out of school, take the, I don't go as far as taking the school because the police there might shoot them. So, <laughs> But I don't know, walking away or like they did in Europe for the climate, things like that. Why they don't do that? They're is there because I know you have consequences for them if you have a bad grade it will affect you to get into university and stuff like that what the consequences are well there were protests a few years ago there was a movement that yes but, but they were the victims yeah exactly after, yes but and, the rest yeah I mean the problem is that there's there's a political paralysis in the US and basically nothing can get done I mean that's why I, res- I said that This is more evidence of the U.S. basically being a failed state, because even if there was political will to do something, it basically nothing can be done because, first of all, everything becomes a partisan issue in in this battle. It is interminable battle between the Democrats and the Republicans. It happens here as well. It happens here. No, I'm, I'm talking more a grassroots level. Yeah, well, I don't want to get killed. My my other the rest of the class don't want to be killed. Let's do something about it. Yeah, well, like I said, I mean, there were students, there was a grassroots element that that took to the streets and organized protests a few years ago exactly over the same issue, and it didn't really go anywhere. And at that time, Donald Trump was president. But even now, I mean, Joe Biden is president. He technically has Democratic, with a capital D, uh, control over the the Senate and the House of Representatives, but he still can't get anything passed because... Yeah. There's two members of his own party who vote against everything. So even if and on, on frankly, I mean, I hate to be pessimistic, but even if the government were able to pass some kind of gun control federally, because, of course, a, a state like Texas, which is, tends to be Republican, is not going to not it's, it's going to have its own 
at local laws because in the U.S. is a federalized system and each state has its own laws. So even if the federal government were able to somehow pass legislation on, on restricting gun gun ownership, what I think, frankly, not to be pessimistic, but it wouldn't even be able to change that much because the thing is in the U.S., there are so many guns. There are, in fact, more guns than there are people. And there are more than 320 million people in the U.S. There are yes, more yes. guns. It's like, this is guns. insane. That's so, insane. And so even it's, if, it's a, a real federal country. I mean... Yeah, so even if the, the government said that they're not going to allow people to... They're going to make strict laws for gun ownership and buying guns. There are the so many that how do, you, how do you regulate that? I don't know. I mean, this is the problem where... The U.S. has flooded the world with weapons through the military-industrial complex, and it did the same thing at home. And well, it's created this suicidal problem where there's no way to deal with the huge number of guns that are everywhere. Well, they have that problem in Mexico, doesn't it? That, that a lot of well, yeah, but those guns come from the U.S. Come, yes, across the border illegally from the U.S. Well, here they, make, they, here they, they, they make them, they fabricate them, mm-hmm. I swear they, to God. So yeah. when people want to get guns, uh, I well, yes, I mean uh, there there is also, as you said, a much bigger problem than just guns. I mean, I don't know, psychology, yeah. something like that. But well, thank you for for <laughs> answering. And uh, we are not an example for anything. But the only time that we protest all the time is so annoying. It's just it's, it's in case of that they go and protest. But the only times that something seems to happen is when they really reach the pockets of the bigger class in, I would say, middle class was mm-hmm. before, but now lower middle class. That is most people that somehow you get to reach the pocket of them. I don't know if it was Amazon to stop buying for, I don't know, and Amazon will have to increase the prices or something like that. That's when things change. Otherwise, it's sad, but it's, it's, it's not that easy. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Y, y gracias por las preguntas. Siempre es un gusto hablar con una compañera de Argentina. Y eh, bueno, eh, porque sí, la mayoría... Vos vivís en el país que me encantaría vivir a mí, así que ni me digas. Acá es invierno. <risa> Lo de compañera es muy lindo, pero yo acá estoy congelada de frío. Y vos, <risa> sí, encima sí. divino. <risa> eh, no sé si vives en Managua, con la gente más amable del mundo. Así que bueno, nada. Sí, bueno, y, y también otra cosa muy buena es que aquí se usa el buceo también. Vos, vos sabés, vos conoces como ahí en Argentina. Entonces es muy interesante que entre Centroamérica y Argentina son los únicos países, o sea, las únicas reuni- regiones que usan el buceo. Entonces, ah, sí, sí, es verdad, dudas. en Managua, me sí. pensaste agarró el buceo. Yo le digo, no, pero yo vengo. Bueno, pero sí, es un gusto. Gracias por las preguntas y, no, y bueno, estamos en contacto. Gracias a vos. Chao. Yeah, and also another thing that I just, before I put, bring the next person on in the queue, which is Jack, another thing that, um, that Sele had mentioned, I think is important to keep in mind is the guns in Mexico come from the U.S. In fact, there have been reports showing that Mexico only has one gun store and all of the other guns in Mexico have come from the U.S. And then, of course, we, there was this big scandal in the Obama administration. It was called Operation Fast and Furious, in which the ATF, the Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms Division of the Justice Department, had been sending guns to Mexico to track the guns, allegedly, and sending them to drug cartels. And so 
that was exposed as a big scandal because the U.S. government was directly giving guns to drug cartels in Mexico. So, I mean, yeah, it's it's such a monumental problem. I I really don't know how it can be solved, even even if this the government were to pass some kind of regulation. It just seems that this is the kind of thing that the U.S. did in Syria and did in Afghanistan, flooding the country with weapons. And then the arms industry did it to itself. I mean, it really is suicidal. And it does show that at the end of the day, the empire's policies abroad always come back home. But um, very interesting discussion there. I'm going to bring Jack on now, who's next in the queue here. Go ahead, Jack. Hey, can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Yeah, so I just wanted to talk about the opioid crisis, if we could. Yeah, that sounds great. Sweet. So I guess in the mainstream, you kind of have uh, opioids and the pharma companies painted as the villains and the unsuspected users as the uh, victims. But I just wanted to give some uh, information. So most opioid users aren't addicted. Uh, opioids provide you know relief to pain patients and now with the restrictions on these pharma companies, pain patients are restricted from getting prescriptions that they need. Um, most people who are addicted to opioids are in a bad socioeconomic standpoint, I guess, where they're poor or unemployed. Um, and then you also have the calculation of opioid deaths is kind of like not trust trustable because you have medical examiners and coroners and cops who are incentivized to report opioid deaths um, and they get grants and funding for it. And like the coroners, they don't do the research to see if like alcohol is like mixed in with the opioid right because it's really hard to overdose on opioid but it's really easy to overdose on a mix of drugs and then um i guess like i'm not trying to like you know take the blame off of the sacklers and all that because obviously they um scheduled the drug oxycodone as schedule three and they knew it was like all other opioids but like the advertising that they did, the aggressive advertising and all that, like that's just what most corporations do in a capitalist economy. And then I guess like now because we have this, I guess, fixation on opioids, right? We don't, they're not going to get legalized, right? You're not going to get decriminalized, right? So like obviously in the United States, we're all about freedom, but not freedom for all the other drugs sites, tobacco or alcohol, and then pain patients get screwed. So, and then we scapegoat these drugs, you know, to, uh, to blame these overdoses, but we don't blame society and our economy for it. So. Cool. Anything, anything else? Uh, well, I wanted to okay, know cool. like what you think about, like, I don't know, kind of like building like a, like a common, I don't know, like, I guess like a political movement based on like the drug war, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you, you make some good points. I mean, obviously we, we do need to foreground this discussion with the fact that, I mean, we have evidence showing that Purdue Pharma and these other big pharma companies were intentionally bribing doctors to overprescribe pain medication and flooding towns, like in, for instance, in West Virginia, there were these towns that were flooded with millions and millions of pain pills, and, and there were million, there were, uh, sorry, there were, there were 
hundreds of pills for every single person in like these small towns in West Virginia and Kentucky targeting Appalachia in particular. But you, you make a really important point about how at the same time, we need to understand that, you know, they're, they're targeting in particular people who come from economically disadvantaged areas where there's chronic unemployment. And also, I think you are definitely right to, to make the point that people who do have chronic pain problems might actually now face more difficulties if they actually do need the drug. So it's, it's definitely a complicated issue that I think you're right that could use some more nuance. But at the same time, we have so much evidence showing that these companies were intentionally engaged in this policy that basically said that we don't care about getting all of these people addicted and potentially killing them because we're making tons of money. I mean, it's so similar to what the, the U.S. and European powers did to China and the opium wars. And the difference is, again, that these corporations were doing it to the U.S. domestic population. But in, in a way, I think we can understand it as the populations that are marginalized within the U.S. because there's very uneven development and it, it is impoverished areas in Appalachia with high unemployment were targeted with kind of similar policies like the policies of the opium wars. So, yeah, I mean, you you, you raised some important points uh, that I think people well, should keep well, in mind. Well, what I'd because- push back on would be like, you know, if we had drugs legalized, right? It would be easy or decriminalized, yeah. or decriminalized. It would be really easy to access them, right? So, it would be basically like the, you know, the it would it would still have access to it, you know, and it would probably honestly be, you know, I don't know. So, yeah, well, no, I mean, I I think drug decriminalization is is a good idea, and I think you know in Portugal it's been pretty effective. A lot of People who study public health have said that decriminalization tends to work better, especially when you look at the U.S. system, which is where the war on drugs is such a farce. And it also helps fuel mass incarceration. And it's, of course, extremely racist, depending on what drugs it is targeting, you know, black people, Latinos. Well, 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 in New York, they decriminalize like weed for Mm -hmm. like a long time ago, and they're still arresting them, people with weed. Like exactly, and that's yeah. happening. So decriminalization definitely doesn't fix it. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I haven't done a lot of research on the difference between decriminalization and legalization, because also if you legalize the drug, like how is it going to be sold? What is the industry going to be like? Well, well, if but you I think, legalize it, you have the state making rules around it. So you'd have a safe supply. Yeah, that's a possibility. I mean, but of course, we know that the U.S. government has very little regulation of anything. So well, what would happen is like it would Advil. be like these you big have, monopoly you have corporations. Advil being regulated and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean... You have alcohol yeah. being regulated, so th- there's not enough alcohol in a bottle that can kill you, right? You can put enough alcohol into a small little tiny bottle where it could just kill you in one sip. Yeah, well, I mean, but I think the point to make, though, is that opioids are not illegal, and they are, I mean, that they already are illegal, but you, they're, of course, based on a doctor's prescription. So I don't really get what where the debate is. I mean, obviously, heroin is illegal, but but opioid pills are not illegal. They're illegal. Yeah. So. So is the idea to, like, sell them over the counter, like, without a doctor's prescription or something? Or? Yeah. 
Yeah, what, what that, would, that would the difference be, be legalization, right? It would be legal for people to get whatever they want. Adults, of course. Well, but I mean, the, but it is legal. I mean, opioids are not illegal. You just need a prescription. Well, yeah, but it's illegal without a prescription. Okay, so, uh, well, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Um, I I would be, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the thing is also that, that we have evidence showing that Purdue and these other companies were also paying doctors to subscribe to, excuse me, to prescribe the, to, like, um, for instance, Oxycontin to their patient, to their patients. And they had a financial incentive. And the more prescriptions they made of that medication, the more money they made. So that is definitely an example of a point. You know, maybe you have a point. Uh, that's an example of how this system of only allowing the drug to be available through doctor's prescription could be abused and lead to further addiction. Yeah. I mean, I've, I haven't done a lot of research on this. It's an interesting idea, but, in general, I mean, I, I'm very sympathetic to the argument that I think drugs that should at least be decriminalized because it leads to this, you know, system in which largely poor people and also people of color are forced into the system of mass incarceration. The, of course, the regulation, the um, enforcement of the laws are extremely uneven. We know that because studies have shown that, like, affluent white communities and poor communities that are largely, you know, people of color have similar takes of or similar rates of drug use. And in fact, in affluent white communities, there's often more drug use, especially of cocaine. And obviously rich white people are not going to prison for cocaine. So yeah, in general, I think this is definitely a discussion that people need to have more and more. Yeah. And the thing about decriminalization though, is that even, uh, even when we did criminalize weed in Brooklyn or, or New York, whenever that happened, like 90% of the people who got arrested were people of color or black people, you know, so. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I don't think anyone's even, anyone serious is, is de- debating anymore whether or not weed should be legal. Obviously, weed should be legal. It's much less dangerous than alcohol. And alcohol is, leads to how many thousands and thousands of deaths per year in the U.S. So, yeah, um, yeah, I'm not. Maybe you would know. In Portugal, I, I think they decriminalized drugs. They didn't legalize them all, or did they? Uh, they decriminalized. Yeah, I don't think any yeah. place really has legalized drugs. Yeah. Well, interesting, interesting points, interesting ideas. Uh, this is something that I could definitely do more research on. So, thank you, Jack. I'm gonna. There's a lot of people in the queue here, so I'm gonna jump to the next four. And uh, just for people listening. I'm going to take these four and then I'm going to wrap up. So it'll probably be 20, 20 more minutes, these last four questions. So here is Richard. Uh, go ahead, Richard. Uh, Rich- so, hello. Yes. Can you hear me? I can. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, that's great, that's great. Yeah, um, well, I would like to introduce myself. It's a, but first of all, um, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, thank you for this space, for this opportunity. It's, it's really great. It's really great. I, I feel really excited. It's my um, pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. I, I would like to introduce myself. Um, I am uh, Richard Maocriano Botina. Uh, uh, I am known as a hacker fiscalia um, in social media. Um, and I was the the former CTI detective that discovered the paramilitary infiltration in Colombia. Basically, I was the first detective who 
has the legal uh, the legal authority to start the investigation and i discovered that but after i discovered i have to flee i have to flee out of the country in less than 48 hours to canada so i live in vancouver british columbia uh, since uh, 20 years ago uh, so over the time i have been researching i have been doing investigation so i was the one that also uh, discovered the links between uh, Alvaro Rivelles, that is the former president of Colombia, who sent 10, to 10 tons of cocaine to the Chapo Guzman, to the Sinaloa cartel. And also recently, uh, we, I was the one behind who helped uh, surrender to justice uh, Otoniel, alias Otoniel, uh, that is known as Otoniel, that is Dairo Antonio Usuga David. Uh, the, the State Department was uh, giving uh, as a reward uh, $5 million dollars uh, for his capture, so he is already now in in US. So my, my that, that's my background. So my uh, question for you is: um, uh, Did you have some information about uh, uh, let, let's see about the Oficina de Envigado? It's called in Colombia. That is basically is the head of the uh, narcos in Colombia, something like that. So uh, lots of people talk about them. Um, uh, that's only a, 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 like a level middle, uh, like a minor people are, are captured, but nobody can touch the invisible narcos, or we call the bosses of the bosses, like we call in Spanish patrones de patrones. Um, I have some names here, so I, I just want to um, uh, tell you very quickly those names, if you are familiar with those names, uh, and also ask you, if there is any research internationally about the heads of the heads or the invisible heads that are commanding the major um, drug trafficking in Colombia and, and are, are uh, invisible. So, so the, the, the first guy is Luis Horacio Escobar Saldarriaga. Uh, I call uh, the invisible octopus. The other one is uh, Luis Guillermo Ángel Restrepo, uh, alias Guillo Ángel. Uh, Juan Guillermo Villegas Uribe, alias El Patrón. Uh, Jose Byron Piedraita Ceballos, alias el, um, el, el árabe. Uh, also, también the, the brothers uh, Juan David, the brothers Ochoa Vázquez, that means Juan David Ochoa Vázquez, Jorge Luis Ochoa Vázquez, Fabio Ochoa Vázquez, Juan José Valencia Zuluaga, alias Falcon, that is the contact with the uh, Yakuza Mafia. By the way, the Yakuza Mafia is called uh, also Sumitomo Corporation. Uh, we found that information. Basically, the whole uh, Yakuza Mafia is uh, undercover and they use the, this company, Sumitomo Corporation, to do the money laundering of the Sinaloa Cartel and also the um, Drangheta. They, they do that. Um, other names are uh, Rodrigo Alberto Zapata Sierra, alias Ricardo, and uh, Gustavo Mejia, and finally uh, Pedro Pablo Uribe Enao. So those names that I mentioned are the one on the center of the of the, of the Oficina de Envigado. So I just want to know if you have some information related to the top heads of of the producers of the of the cocaine or the paramilitarism in Colombia. If you have if you have been done some research about that uh, and also give you the the opportunity to ask me questions about that if, if you have any questions or we, we can chat a little bit here very quick. And, and we can and I encourage to maybe continue talking later. Uh, it will be very interesting to talk with you because I know that you know a lot. <laughs> you know a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, 
Well, great questions, great comments. Uh, thank you. Y, y bueno, gracias por las preguntas. Siempre es un gusto okay. hablar con los compañeros de, de varios países Excelente. hoy en, en Latinoamérica. Entonces había sí, una gracias. muchacha de Argentina y usted sí. de Colombia. Entonces, de Colombia. bueno, eh, sí, bueno. Eh, eh, oh, y, y después mándeme un mensaje por, eh, por como eh, mensaje por Twitter o, o otra plataforma y podemos hablar más de, sí. de ese tema, pero en inglés. Uh, so, sí. um, so you, you would definitely know much more in depth uh, what's going on with the links between drug cartels and the Colombian state. I think you, you, made, you made an important point. From the research I've done, my understanding is that really the head capo, the patron de todos los patrones, is Álvaro Uribe. In my understanding, um, I mean... Uh, Well, Albert Rive is the political, uh, is the political uh, visible head, basically. But behind him, there's a, it's a huge, <laughs> it's a huge uh, um, contacts. Like a Colombia has a contacts with the Hezbollah, with the Lebanese uh, mafia, also with the Sinaloa cartel, with the Italian Nangreta mafia, and also with the Yakuza mafia. Let's say uh, this guy that I mentioned, Falcon, he's the contact of the... Uh, with the Yakuza Mafia, that are the, the biggest, uh, the largest money, lo uh, money lo lo launderings in the world. And that's, that's really serious. Um, and very dangerous as well, no? <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, all, all this well, subject is as dangerous. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Well, and Uribe is also very, uh, my understanding is that he's also very close to the Medellin cartel. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Specifically. Uh, Yeah, one of my one of my top sources are the uh, basically the, the people that I stay from more than three years ago in the business. One of those guys belong to the Medellin cartel, and those are my. I have one that is one of my sources. That's why I have uh, information about all all this um, uh, uh, ch chart, all this um, um, organization, right? Yeah. So I mean. You d you definitely know much more about this than I do, but the the other I mean research that I've done about this specifically in in, in regards to Ivan Duque, the current president, oh, yeah. is also oh, yeah. <laughs> my, my understanding is that his kind of links to drug cartels and organized crime was through Nene Hernandez, who's now dead, yeah, exactly, yeah, who died in very oh, yeah. strange circumstances in Brazil. But from, yeah. from what I understand. Nene Hernandez was working for Uribe Vélez, and Uribe told yeah. Nene Hernandez to to buy votes on behalf of Duque using drug money. And yeah, that's, that's true. I don't know if Duque, the current president, has any other direct links to the cartels. Yeah, of course. Yeah, uh, basically, Ivan Duque is a puppet. He's the puppet, and behind is Alvaro Uribe Vélez. And mm -hmm. the problem there is like a, a, a Nene Hernandez. He was a, a narco guy, very powerful, and he was also financing all the electoral campaigns. And right now, he, uh, the narcos in Colombia are financing uh, um, Federico Gutierrez, that is the, the guy behind Uribe at this time. Mm -hmm. um, so, so in that situation, uh, El Niño Hernández was killed in Brazil. And the reason was because he was stalling some information about the, all the drug trafficking that he was doing with, with his team. And he hide the micro SD card in a in a, a watch that he has in the, in his grips in in the grips, and uh, for that reason he was killed in um in Brazil in order to to take it out from him that information, uh, because it was uh, it, it was the whole uh, accounting right of the of the of the trafficking, um, but Ivan Duque 
is uh, yeah he's he's the the top guy uh, after Uribe. I mean Uribe is, is the is behind all the time, no? And he stole the elections uh, in 2018 from Gustavo Petro. Gustavo mm -hmm. Petro is supposed to be the president in the past. Uh, by now, is um, that will be president anyway? Um, is is the, the first in the in, in the elections right now? Um, yeah, so it's um, yeah, so, so the corruption is, is really huge at that point, yes. So, um, is Federico Gutierrez also linked to cartels? Oh, yeah, I, I, I did a very deep investigation about him. Federico Gutierrez, he was uh, the mayor of Medellin. At that moment, he has another uh, group of uh, uh, four prosecutors that were like a try to catch uh, like a gangsters from the street, and they say that they are no gangsters; they are like a top guys from the uh, Oficina de Envigado, which is uh, no truth. They 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 uh, managed to find like a fake witnesses, and with those fake witnesses, today I, I recognize two people um, that are witnesses that they surrender to justice. And they confess that they give grunt testimonies in order to create like a, like we call in Spanish, falsos positivos judiciales, like a fake uh, mm -hmm. positives, no? Uh, and that people are in jail. And uh, we, we, I ask him, how many people are right now like a innocent in jail just to inflate, just to create more um, statistics, like a positive statistics of, of like a good doings, not like a, the right doings. And, um, and they say 120 people between 120 to 200 right now, but they are doing this for the last eight years. And when they create all those fake uh, statistics, Federico Gutierrez used that information as a political um, marketing tool to try to get more votes. And, uh -huh. that's, and that's serious. But lots of, lots, hundreds of people are in the jail right now just because the statistics. And the prosecutor that is called Claudia, Castilla, Cla Cla Claudia Carrasquilla, she uh, ran for office uh, as a senator. So, so she tried to she tried to be a senator. She was not elected, but she was using those numbers. She say, uh, "I captured one thousand five hundred people, and that's from the Oficina de Vigado, and that's our major discovery." But people uh, went in in front and they confessed that those things are fake. And also, she say like she was prosecuted by Otoniel, and the same guy say, "No, no, no, that was a lie. I lied for those things, and that's not truth. She is lying." So, uh, yeah, so this is a big scandal right now. And for those reasons, uh, obviously, he lost so many votes in, in the election right now. And, he, and he's, he's contrary. I mean, the, the, the secretary of the security of the um, Medellin, uh, Medellin city is now in jail. His name is Gustavo Villegas. And he was in contact with the, um, uh, with, with the remainder of the, of the Medellin cartel, basically. Uh, with those sicarios, and the problem about that is because he was trying to um, approach the those narcos and try to tell them, hey, don't do more narco work. Come here and surrender to justice. We give some uh, motivations, and the, the motivations to go out of the system. Uh, and they, and at the moment, everything was kind of okay because every agency in every every law enforcement law enforcement agency tried to do the same. But the grunt thing that they do, that they try to do is like a asking for favors, for favors. So they are asking, okay, just help me to uh, promote my um, uh, my um, application to be a, a mayor of Medellin. So Gustavo Villegas, he also was he was trying to run for a, a mayor of Medellin, 
and also uh, he was asking for favors for Federico Gutierrez. So, so in this situation, uh, it's, it's becoming like a business, like a business transaction instead of surrender to justice. So, uh, and that was a big problem, it's a big scandal. There is lots of articles, lots of information in Spanish. Um, yeah, so, so he's Federico Gutierrez. Basically, um, he's uh, the new Ivan Duque behind, uh, behind is Alvaro Uribe Vélez. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. Well, well uh, thank you for providing this information. We should talk more uh, yeah. the week of the election. Um, there are two other people in the queue, and I want to get to their questions, but... Um, But please, uh, bueno, eh, escríbeme por, por Twitter porque mi, mi, sí, mi botón está yo, abierto. Yo, Entonces, sí, me, me puede escribir. Eh, yo le envío un mensaje. Le acabé de escribir. Eh, eh, muchas gracias, de verdad. Muy ah, gentil. Dale, gracias. Bueno, okay. estamos en contacto. Ok, so, right, yeah, I'm definitely going to do some coverage of the election in Bolivia, uh, excuse me, in Colombia that's coming up on the 29th. And uh, Richard mentioned something very important, which is that the main candidate, Gustavo Petro, who is leading in all of the polls, and his vice president, uh, Francia Marquez, his vice presidential candidate, they have openly said that the last election was stolen. Petro has tweeted publicly that the election was stolen from him and that the current president, Ivan Duque, did, did not actually win. And unlike, you know, in the U.S., there are a lot of people who claim you know, the, this, these fringe weirdos who claim that the Trump won, but actually in, in Colombia, it's absolutely true. I mean, it, we have evidence in, including these leaked recordings showing that Ivan Duque only won the election because he basically stole it by buying votes with drug money. So I'm definitely going to talk more with Richard and um, next week, on the week of the, uh, on the 29th and the days after, I'm going to be doing coverage of Colombia, and if the election is free and fair, uh, Gustavo Petro, the left-wing candidate, should win. But of course, as we were just talking about, Colombia's political system is very undemocratic. So we'll see how that goes. All right. So two final questions here. I'm going to go to Mike and then Leandro. So here you go, Mike. Hey, Ben. Uh, my hey, question. Hey, how's it going? Uh, my question does not have to do with drugs, although those past <laughs> questions were pretty interesting as well as the, the last episode, but it has to do with Nicaragua. Um, I was reading an article uh, in the New York Times, actually. It's called Nicaragua's Secretive Ruling Family Reaches Out Quietly to the United States. It was published a couple of weeks ago on uh, May 5th. And I just wanted to get your, I guess, response to it, but particularly on uh, certain questions around Nicaragua's current like economic and political position, um, as well as in regards to its leader, uh, you know, the Ortega family. So if it's, if it's okay with you, I'll, I'll be quick here, but I, I want to give the audience just a little context. I have a couple of the, the quotes. It says, shortly after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the most prominent son of Nicaragua's autocratic president, and I know there's a lot of slander and stuff, but anyway, Uh, Daniel Ortega quietly approached Washington to restart dialogue. The key topic on his mind was sanctions relief for the family. It talks about how this Loriano Ortega has helped the family consolidate power. He now manages Nicaragua's most important relationships, especially forging landmark diplomatic and energy agreements with Chinese and Russian diplomats. 
Despite Daniel Ortega's denunciations of Washington, Nicaragua's economy relies heavily on the United States, its largest trading partner by far. Russia, Venezuela, and Cuba, uh, Ortega's allies, do not even make the top five list. It says the president's children are unable to live comfortable lives, which they've become accustomed to with the money they need to pay pro-government paramilitaries. Lorena Ortega aimed to secure sanctions relief for the Ortega family and his inner circle in exchange for releasing political prisoners, something very important to the Biden administration. It's unclear whether his approach was prompted by fears of Russia's growing isolation or if there's some kind of split between what the New York Times calls the old guard of the Sandinistas and the family itself. It says as the family increases its grip over the state, members of the, quote, old guard are increasingly at odds with the Ortega family, uncomfortable with the growing dynastic ambitions and are also infected, affected by Washington sanctions. It's unclear who's going to take over after Ortega passes on, whether it will be Loriano or his wife. It says Miss Murillo is already in her 70s. If chosen, she might hold presidency for a period of time before passing the reins on to her son. And then finally, over time, the government has shown that everything rests on the family model and your relation to it. So I know there's a lot of misinformation, slander, lies, you know, everything kind of to be expected from the New York Times. But I also think there's some, I don't want to call it kernels of truth, but what is Nicaragua's situation right now with, with the sanctions, especially um, with, you know, being allies of Russia in, in, in particular? And then uh, separately, the whole question around the leadership of the Sandinistas, you know, Benya, I think, is in his late, late 70s now. You know, I hope he lives on for a while. But um, is there talk in Nicaragua? What What's kind of the sentiment? Are people worried that this is going to become some sort of like family dynasty or what what sort of can you clear up that that question a bit? Yeah, well, I, I remember reading that article in The New York Times. I mean, it is truly like living in another world. It's like I read that piece <laughs> to someone from living in Nicaragua. I read that piece and I felt like I was living on Mars because it's so completely at odds with the reality here. You read it and it tr it portrays Nicaragua as like this crazy country that's like on the verge of war and it's dangerous. No, I mean, this is the safest country in Central America. It's one of the safest countries in all of Latin America. And it is a country where there is major political stability. The idea that like the government is just repressing people and you go on the street. No, I mean, it's absurd. Uh, the idea of of paramilitary groups, it's complete nonsense. That That's all just ridiculous propaganda. And I want to point out that the author of this piece, who is the New York Times, the newly appointed correspondent for Mexico and Central America, has no experience in Latin America, doesn't speak Spanish, is extremely politically biased. And in that same article, there's a correction at the bottom which is hilarious, that shows that she didn't even know what OAS stood for, the Organization <laughs> of American States. She also so, quoted the Nicaraguan ambassador to the OAS, who is since, as far as I know, is out of a job, right? <laughs> well, I mean, he's, he's a trader who was bribed, and he, he, get, he just t turned over to the U.S. and just told, just said whatever the U.S. wanted him to say. I mean, he's a complete trader who's despised by people here in the country. 
Anyway, and, and also he never had a history in the Salonista movement. He was a journalist at a TV channel. His name is Arturo McFields. And he was a TV channel uh, host, and, but not a Salonista. And then he was appointed as like a diplomatic concession to the opposition. You know, the, all these governments, Venezuela too, like the idea that there's some crazy authoritarian regime is so far from the truth. In fact, the governments very often go out of their way to make political concessions to the opposition. And Arturo, Arturo McFields, the former OAS ambassador, was someone that they picked who was from, who was sympathetic to the opposition, but also could like be a bridge figure. And he was a complete traitor and he was bribed and just became a puppet of the US. So anyway, all right. So that, that piece is just ridiculous propaganda. I think there's one element of truth in it, which is that, yes, Nicaragua is trying to r reduce the sanctions on it, obviously. And it's not because of the ruling family and all this nonsense. It's because the sanctions are hurting the economy. And as the article points out, which is true, the, the vast majority of Nicaragua's exports still go to the U.S. because Nicaragua is in Central America. It's very close to the United States. It's a two hour flight from Florida. And because Russia and China are on the other side of the planet. So though, although politically, Russia and China are close allies of Nicaragua, economically, it makes much more sense to send your goods to the country that's right next to you than to, to the countries on the other side of the planet. Now, that said, Nicaragua, it's one of its major trading partners is China, and it's been increasing its relations with China and ex exports, exports to China. But the thing is, Nicaragua is also a very poor country and it's an agricultural country and its top exports are, are textiles. That's clothing like shirts and pants and stuff and meat, like na na namely beef and coffee. I mean, it's a very agricultural country. And there's a few other things like, uh, sugar and tobacco and fish. But I mean, it, it's, it's mostly raw materials. And those raw materials mostly go to the U.S., which is uh, that's the kind of relation that most countries in the global south still have in the in the periphery to the core is that they export raw materials to the core. And then the, the imperial core exports capital and technology to the global south. So the sanctions on Nicaragua that were started started being imposed by the U.S. in 2018 after the failure of the brutally violent U.S. backed coup attempt. The sanctions have hurt the economy. And then, of course, there was COVID. And now there is this massive inflation crisis. And the government has frozen um, prices of certain important things, especially fuel. The government has subsidized fuel. So it's frozen at a steady rate, which is a way, a, a, an effort to try to soften the impact of inflation in the country. But it's still definitely being felt. And since 2018, the economy has been hurting in Nicaragua. So, yes, I mean, it is true that the government was reaching out to try to soften U.S. sanctions. But the idea that The New York Times portrays this as that the government is only motivated to try to lift sanctions because it's hurting the so-called ruling family is so absurd. First of all, I mean, why would like the 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 daughters and sons of Ortega and Murillo don't want to go to the U.S. The idea, it's so funny, like the idea that they all just like want to go live in Florida is so absurd. So the idea that these sanctions are hurting them specifically doesn't make sense because they don't have bank accounts in the U.S. 
and they don't want to go to the U.S. So it's the, the sanctions don't hurt members of, you know, uh, political they, they don't hurt the political class. This is true for every country on Earth that, that is sanctioned. I mean, the sanctions largely hurt average working people. So that's a ridiculous propaganda. And then finally, the idea that Nicaragua is like a monarchy is so ridiculous. Now, it is true that that one of Ortega's sons, and I should point out that Ortega and Murillo have a dozen children. They have a lot of kids. They have 10 kids. So one of their kids has a political role. One of them, which is Laureano, and he is he is an economic, basically a kind of economic attaché who helps to to he's a diplomat, but in, in, in an economic capacity. So he travels and tries to get trade deals and tries to diversify Nicaragua's trade. So it's not so heavily dependent on the U.S. And yes, he has been negotiating with China. But the idea that like he's going to be president is absurd. There's not a single hint of that. In fact, there has been discussions of who the next president might be. And there are several people who have been discussed, including the current mayor of Managua, who has no relation whatsoever to Ortega Murillo. Uh, and also there's another prominent member of the National Assembly who is a Sandinista politician named Walmar Gutierrez. He's also being considered as a potential successor. Now, wh what this propaganda reminds me of is when Fidel Castro was still president in Cuba. There was so much propaganda similar to this New York Times piece claiming that when Fidel Castro dies, it's going to be the end of the Cuban Revolution because the only reason that the Cuban Revolution has held on is because of Fidel and his brother Raul. And then what happened? Fidel stepped down and then his brother also stepped down as leader, leader of the Communist Party of Cuba. And there has been a new generation of leaders in Cuba, including the current president, Miguel Diaz-Canel, who have no relation to the Castros. So, I mean, this is just ridiculous propaganda and no one in Nicaragua is seriously discussing like this idea that it's going to be like a monarchy. It's all propaganda from outside. Okay. Thanks for clearing that up. Yeah. Th thanks for raising it because there is definitely, even on the left, there's a lot of confusion about this. So yeah, it's, um, that piece was just ridiculous. So thanks, Mike. And uh, now I'm going to jump to the last question here, which is Leandro. Go ahead, Leandro. Hello, can you hear me? I can. Mm -hmm. Great. Hi, Ben. Uh, so I'm, I'm calling you from New Zealand. I'm originally from Argentina as well, so lots of Latin Americans today. Great. Uh, <laughs> but my question, my question is not about Latin America today. Uh, hopefully I'll have some questions about that later in a later day. Uh, but it's about uh, Taiwan. And my question comes because I've been uh, trying to learn a little bit about the situation and the history of Taiwan and China. And I, I came across a content creator that made like a, like a long video explaining the situation in Taiwan. Um, he made quite a, a few points, but the, the things that st stood out to me were that Taiwan now has uh, the major producer of, of microchips for processors and all kind of technology. So they have like 90% of the market share at the moment uh, with this company called Tencent, I think. Uh, and obviously, they are a key geographical uh, location for China in terms of having access to their trade routes and maritime uh, uh, and their control their coasts, basically. Um, so, and the other point is... Uh, Content creator, sorry, I can't remember who he was, but he was saying 
that uh, China's best chance to take action on Taiwan will be during this decade because of economic pressures, but also because their population will start to uh, decline in terms of they, they're going to be aging uh, faster because obviously they're in a better uh, economic position now. So it happens to all countries that, that develop that their population starts to age. Uh, so, and I wanted to know, uh, what do you think about this and how this is related to uh, Biden's uh, reckless comments the other day? Uh, about Taiwan and and how it also links to to the Ukraine war. Great question, very good question, and I think this is going to be. You're right. This is the issue of the decade. It's going to have major political consequences. Honestly, I think one of the best ways to understand what Washington's perspective is on this is actually reading an insanely unhinged column that was published at The Hill which is a right-wing media outlet in Washington, and it's owned by a major Trump donor. And The Hill published this deranged column in 2021, in no last November, and it's titled, America Must Prepare for War with China Over Taiwan. And the guy who wrote the article is a former CIA agent, and he worked on East Asia for the CIA. His name is David Sauer. And he was, he's a retired senior CIA officer who served as chief of station and deputy chief of station in multiple overseas command positions in East Asia and South Asia. So this guy, he wrote this article that I think as, as evil as this guy is and as unhinged and deranged as this article is calling for war with China, it's a revealing article because it shows exactly what these U.S. imperial planners think of when they talk about Taiwan. And he, he just spells it all out very clearly and shows what the U.S. strategy is. He says, Taiwan is of vital geopolitical importance to the United States. As World War II U.S. Navy Admiral, Admiral Ernest King said, Taiwan is the, quote, cork in the bottle for Japan. Whoever controls Taiwan will control Japan and the Republic of Korea's shipping lifelines. So he's saying that the U.S. needs to control Taiwan because it will control the shipping lifelines for Japan and South Korea. And then he adds, he says, Chinese control of Taiwan will give it enormous influence over both Japan and South Korea, fundamentally altering the strategic calculus in East Asia. And of course, that's why he also says the U.S. wants to maintain control over Taiwan because the key, at the key of the U.S. Pacific strategy is this basically this kind of triangulation between South Korea, Japan and Taiwan. And we saw that South Korea and Japan have been attending NATO meetings. And Ronald Reagan back in the 80s declared uh, Japan and South Korea to be uh, non-NATO strategic partners, but they've become more and more closely associated with NATO, although they're very far from the North Atlantic region. And most recently, this April, there was a meeting of the foreign ministers of NATO in Brussels. And that meeting was attended by all of the NATO member states, but also Ukraine. It was attended by Finland, Sweden, and it was attended by Japan and South Korea. And the head of NATO, Jen Stoltenberg, gave a speech in which he said that 
NATO is coordinating more closely militarily and technologically with South Korea and Japan. So this is all about encircling China. And it's also about controlling trade routes, which is a part of the economic encirclement of China. And we also should keep in mind that the, the U.S. military's uh, Pacific strategy right now includes spending more than $20 billion over the next five years to build a series of missiles installations on the first island chain. And there was an article in a major Japanese media outlet spelling out this plan of these U.S. military installations, missile installations pointed at mainland China on the first island chain. And of course, Taiwan is a huge part of that military strategy. And then finally, in this article in The Hill, the CIA officer he also mentions another important factor that you, you, you raised. He says, he writes, quote, perhaps most importantly, Taiwan is the center for advanced semiconductor production. The Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company boasts that it has the most advanced foundry in the world. Chinese control of this company would provide it enormous economic benefit and would result in the world being dependent on China for advanced semiconductors. And of course, they they want the U.S. to be dependent on the U.S. and its ally Taiwan for advanced semiconductors. So he spells out all the reasons why. I mean, De- de- so-called democracy is, of course, just window dressing. It, the reality is that Taiwan is a key part of U.S. strategy. And also it was a it was um, I believe it was Curtis LeMay, who was the head of strategic air command. And he oversaw the war in Korea. And I believe it was Curtis LeMay who famously referred to Taiwan as an unsinkable aircraft carrier. So we should also keep in mind that from the military strategy, Taiwan, from the 1950s until the late 1970s, when the U.S. signed a series of agreements normalizing relations with the People's Republic of China, recognizing, uh, basically recognizing the, the, the one China policy, although the language on those three communiques is, is debated legally. But anyway, in the 19, late 1970s, the U.S. agreed as part of that normalization to withdraw its military base from Taiwan. But from the 1950s up through the end of the 1970s, the U.S. had a significant military base on Taiwan with nuclear weapons that were pointed at mainland China. And in fact, there was a a, a crisis in the Taiwan Strait in the 1950s. And President Eisenhower was being pressured by the military brass to launch nuclear strikes on mainland China. And Fortunately, he agreed not to do that. I mean, that would have been insane and it would have led to a total nuclear apocalypse. But if, uh, but if Eisenhower had, had launched a nucle- nuclear attack on mainland China, it would have been using the nuclear weapons on Taiwan. So I think another, aside from the economics we were talking about, another key factor in this is that the U.S. wants to reopen a military base on Taiwan and it wants to store nuclear weapons there, just as in Ukraine before the, the Russian intervention, Zelensky was talking about getting nuclear weapons in Ukraine. And Ukraine actually had nuclear weapons when it was part of the Soviet Union. So this is, I mean, a very real military strategy. We, we saw another former CIA officer who now is at a major think tank in Washington published an article in Foreign Policy Magazine, which is one of the most elite magazines in Washington. It represents the kind of Beltway consensus. 
And in that article, he, he called openly for the U.S. to prepare for potential nuclear war with China and Russia. And of course, Taiwan would be one of the main sites for storing those. So we should keep in mind that the Obama administration announced that it's going to spend trillions of dollars over the next 30 years modernizing the, the U.S. nuclear arsenal. And that, of course, continued under Trump and has also continued under Biden. So the, this is really the way that these military brass people in Washington, this is the way they think. And for them, Taiwan is what this guy in the CIA article, he refers to it as a, quote, prickly porcupine against China. And that's why China sees this as an existential threat. And that's why China has constantly referred to it as its red line, just as Russia has referred to Ukraine as its red line. So, yeah, great question. That is great. Yeah, no, that's great. Thanks for filling the, the gaps for me because yeah, I hadn't read that article. I'm, I'm going to give it a read. And, and yeah, I, I just, from my perspective now that I live in New Zealand, I, I can see how the anti-China propaganda is, uh, is ramping up. Uh, I, I even saw, I, you mentioned the Falun Gong the other day in one of your, your shows, and we have those guys here in the center of Christchurch, uh, like, yeah, giving information and asking for signatures. And it, it all looked very weird, but now it's clear to me what this is about. Uh, but yeah, no, I, um, I just want to thank you, um, for making yourself available to, to the callers, which I think not all journalists, especially in the mainstream media can do. And also because of your work, uh, in Latin America and, 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 and spreading information about what, what's been really going on in the last decades, uh, over there. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the phrase, uh, nadie es profeta en su tierra, which is nobody yeah. is a prophet, <laughs> a prophet in their land. <laughs> so, uh, I, I try to talk to, to my friends and family, but I think it's easier for me to refer them to you and they will <laughs> listen to what you say. Uh, yeah, and believe you a lot more. Uh, so yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. Thank you, Leandro. And thanks to everyone else. It, it was really great to have two people from Argentina and someone from Colombia, along with people from other countries. So it's, it's always great to get people from around the world to talk about these issues. And of course, you know, also New Zealand. So, um, I want to thank everyone who joined in the stream. Maybe, who knows, maybe I'll do one of these in Spanish sometime. That would be fun. I'll announce that before, that but, um, but, uh, with that said, uh, I'm going to be, I do two of these a week. I do two of these episodes on a call in where I just discuss different political issues. So everyone keep an eye on my Twitter account. I'm going to announce the other one today is Wednesday, which means I'll probably do the other one on Friday. So keep an eye out for that. And as always, this episode will be available after there's an RSS feed. So you can download it like, like you would any other podcast. And if you missed a part of it you want to listen to, definitely check it out. So with that said, I want to thank everyone who listened. This is Rules-Based Disorder, and I'll see you all next time. Thanks.